What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy podcast, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling. I, as always, am tremendously excited to be back with another Midnight Myth. And the reason I am is we are going back to Middle Earth. Laurel and I have just finished half of Return of the King, so we've read the first half, and this is going to be our Part one discussion on Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. Yeah, super, super exciting to be back. We took a few weeks off to delve into other pop culture universes, but uh, it's lovely to be back in Middle Earth. It's much nicer than uh, the regular world right now. And Indeed, I would totally agree. It's better to be in Middle Earth than it is to be in Philadelphia in America right now. Yeah, yeah. You certainly can move around a lot more in Middle Earth. That's true. Um, I hope everyone out there is maintaining. I hope everyone that's listening is self-isolating for the COVID-19 outbreak. And I hope everybody is staying psychologically healthy, physically healthy, and uh, we'll get through this. Um, If we all just stay home. Yep. One more thank you. We will always throw these thank yous out to our essential workers, especially those in healthcare professions who are putting their lives on the line every single day to help us through this. Uh, Please take care of yourselves and know that we are thinking of you. Uh, to To those who stock the shelves at grocery stores, to those who are cashiers and checkouts, to those who are doing deliveries, thank you for working. Um, You're amazing. It's almost as if you can find heroes in the most unlikely places who can rise to the challenges that are presented to them and do something truly amazing when no one expects them to do anything truly amazing. That sounds like one of the themes we may be discussing at length on today's podcast. Absolutely. I can't wait to talk Return of the King. You know, if someone were to ask me, Derek, what's your favorite Lord of the Rings movie? It's really hard for me to answer. I will typically answer the one that I have just most recently watched. Yeah. Because I do genuinely love all three. And depending upon my mood, do I want something a little happier? Do I want something a little more combat oriented? Do I want something a little more philosophical, etc.? The Lord of the Rings movies has all of those. But if someone were to ask me, Derek, what's your favorite Lord of the Rings book? Without hesitation, without needing to think about it, with no preamble, it's Return of the King. Yeah, I am going to have to agree with you there. You know, it's been a while since I read the books. I read them uh, as a teenager, and, uh, you know, I haven't gotten to the second half yet, but at least uh, for the first half, the uh, book five, uh, which is subtitled The War of the Ring, has been the most exhilarating reading experience of the whole series for me so far, um, and I'm just so stoked to talk about it. Yep, Absolutely. Um, Before we dive in too deep, before we roll up our sleeves and fully get to work, Laurel, do your thing. All right. So uh, if you are sitting at home and want to reach out and connect with somebody, why don't you connect with us? We're going to be on social media all week. Uh, I'm always on our Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast, and we would love to hear from you, whatever you're thinking. If you've got thoughts about the show, if you've got episodes you want us to do, hit us up. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, You can also reach out to us via the contact form on our website, which is midnightmyth.com. You can always drop us an email there if you want. Um, That website is also going to give you a few pieces of extra content. So you'll find our blogs. 
Uh, you'll find a link to our Patreon where you can support us if you have the means to support us for a low monthly donation and get some extra bonus episodes as well. Um, and you can find the link to our shop there too. So if you want to support some Midnight Myth and Wheel of Calm merch, that's where you'll find that. Um, also on the website, there's a new featured episodes page. If you're new to the podcast and want to figure out what our best episodes are, what really gives you an idea of what we do here at the Midnight Myth, check that out. Yeah, uh, hit me up on Twitter as at Derek Jones 198. If you'd like to specifically dialogue with me, Wheel of Cough fans, quick update here. Steve and I know we owe you the second half of the book. Um, there's a lot going on right now. Typically, Steve comes to the studio to record it, which would not be proper social distancing guidelines. So we're kind of negotiating and figuring out a way to do it. Steve does not have an at-home studio the way that I do. So thank you for your patience. We aren't giving up on the Wheel of Ka. It will resume. We just don't know exactly when or how, and we're kind of figuring that out as we speak. And it's an ongoing discussion. Um, for myself, just to be perfectly transparent, I my job right now is tremendously busy. It's technically considered an essential service, and I've been really putting my nose to the grindstone there, which has meant a little less time for Wheel of Ka as well. But it's going to get done. Thank you for just chilling out, and uh, we haven't forgotten about you. We'll get it done as soon as it's safe and able. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you all for understanding. Uh, we're so grateful to have you listening and on our side here in this, and hopefully we'll be able to get you some of that content soon. Um, but for now, at least we can spend some time in Middle Earth. Uh, last thing to wrap this up, we are doing a giveaway um, to, to coincide with our Lord of the Rings series. So on our next Lord of the Rings episode, we're actually going to draw the winners of that giveaway. So you just have a little bit more time to enter. The way you're going to do that is to go to our Twitter, at The Midnight Myth, and check out the pinned tweet at the top of our page, and that will give you instructions on how to enter the giveaway. It's just a couple of clicks, and you can absolutely enter, uh, and we'll draw the winner on the next uh, episode of the Lord of the Rings series. Uh, and we'll be really excited to give you those two Funko Pops, Sam and Frodo, and a Trivial Pursuit Lord of the Rings pack. Wonderful. Um, on with the show? Yeah. All right, I'm going to do a very briefest of briefest of recaps, even briefer than normal, the first half of this book features the stories that happen largely in Edoras in Rohan and in Minas Tirith in Gondor. Gandalf and Pippin are in Gondor, working with the Lord Denethor. Feamir shows up, Denethor goes mad, a great battle happens, and Pippin rises to the occasion. On the flip side, we have the people, the heroes at Edoras, which have Eowyn and Merry disguising themselves as riders to war. We have Aragorn meeting up with the rest of the Dunedain, his rangers, and Legolas and Gimli going to uh, get the army of the dead to go work for them. And we have King Theoden leading his troops to the Battle of Pelennor Field. A huge battle happens. Our heroes win. Aragorn heals some people in the Houses of Holy, and they march off to Mordor as a way to distract Sauron to give Frodo a chance to destroy the ring. That's the brief recap. Bada bing, bada boom. Really quick. And the reason we're recapping it really quick is we have so much to say. Um, it's, it's daunting tackling what happens. It's a very dense, very thick first half, a major battle, lots of character growth. I mean, Denethor is just, I could do a whole podcast just on same, him and same. his conversations with Pippin and Gandalf playing a game of mental chess where Denethor is trying to get information out of Pippin, where Pippin is dedicating his life to the men of Gondor. I mean, it's so good. Where would you like to begin, Laurel? Um, just to give a sort of overview of my experience of reading this, just how I'm feeling in general. Um, I, I did say that this has been the most enjoyable reading experience of the series so far for me. But uh, the reason for that, I think, is because it's a portrait and courage across the board. Um, with the exception of Denethor, who I think provides a really interesting counterpoint, every character really rises to the occasion, uh, really shows up in this book. Uh, there is so much growth, um, and I think Pippin is the like ultimate example of that, of seeing like the wideness, the width and the breadth of somebody's arc, but it's everywhere. You see Aragorn 
really showing who he is. You see Mary really showing his mettle. You see Eowyn having the, one of the most incredibly powerful moments in the series. Um, it just blows me away. It's really emotional. Um, and I am just, I'm, I'm blown away by it. So I just wanted to start by putting that out there, that I think this is the book where people show who they are. And courage and valor and bravery and devotion are placed above anything else in this book. Yeah, it's also the point where the heroes are in their most amount of trouble, arguably. Yeah. I mean, these heroes have gone through many different perils, but they have been fragmented across Middle Earth at this point. None of them are in their comfort zone. We have Gimli literally afraid to enter a mine. Yeah. You know, we have so many um, of the challenges are the the challenges that are going to be the hardest for the characters. For example, as well, Pippin is a fool up until this point. Yeah. He is clearly the least perceptive. He is the least intelligent. He's constantly creating mischief. In both book one and two, there's a scene where Pippin makes a critical error. In the minds of Moria, he knocks over a skeleton, which helps um, alert the goblins to their presence. And in the book two, he ends up at uh, the two towers uh, grabbing the Palantia. Did I say that right? Palantir, yeah. Palantir, pardon me. The Palantir. I'm bad or with Or Palantir, these. yeah. Yeah, he grabs that and alerts Sauron to everything that's happening, which causes him to have to leave his best friend Mary behind and go into Gondor. In the beginning of this book, Pippin isn't even aware that Strider is Aragorn and the heir to the throne of Gondor. He doesn't even know that. How imperceptive does he have to be as a character to, to, to not recognize what this whole thing's been about, which is defeating Sauron so that King can return? Yeah, I think a huge portion of this book is um, Pippin's awakening and Pippin's coming of age. If we think about him in Hobbit cultural terms, he's 29, uh, which is my age, but he's literally still a child in the eyes of Hobbits. They come of age when they're 33. So he's not considered a man. And the first moments of the book, he is riding uh, with Gandalf, uh, sort of on the front of the saddle like a child. Uh, and he's falling in and out of sleep while his grandfather figure sort of takes him through to Minas Tirith. And then there's that moment where uh, Gandalf is talking to him and saying, we're going to go in and meet Denethor. Try not to say anything about Aragorn. Uh, and Pippin has no idea what's going on. Why? Why wouldn't I say anything? Uh, and Gandalf says to him, if you have walked all of these days with closed ears and mind asleep, wake up now. And he does immediately. Right then and there, Pippin transitions to become one of the most extraordinarily perceptive characters in the whole series. He walks into the room with Denethor and immediately starts making all these connections. He can see Boromir in the man's eyes, but he also sees a grandeur and a palatial quality to him that makes him think he looks more like a wizard than Gandalf, but then it sort of switches. He starts putting things together and becoming someone who can read people, who can read rooms, and who can understand like the deep histories that lead us to become the people that we are. It's really incredible to watch Pippin's growth and how fast it happens and how, uh, how strong and devoted and brave he becomes really, really quickly. Yeah, and to be fair, Denethor wants to hear Pippin's tale first and makes Pippin stand and speak and tell him everything, knowing that Gandalf is going to filter the information, knowing that Gandalf is going to tell him certain things and maybe hold some other things back. In particular, we learned that Denethor knows about Aragorn and he realizes Gandalf's not going to tell anything. So he's hopeful that he's going to get more information out of Pippin and turns Pippin into a pawn in a dialogue that's really between Gandalf and between Denethor. Yeah, yeah. And that is a really, um, one, it's a really incredibly well um, written and by, you know, Tolkien, because, yeah. yeah, he's a master. That goes without saying that he writes really well. Yeah. Um, but two, it puts him in the hardest place possible because Pippin is a loudmouth. He doesn't watch what he speaks and he doesn't think too deeply about anything. And here he is in between the most powerful steward in Denethor next to the most powerful wizard in Gandalf discussing matters of life and death. Yeah. 
And he does, and Gandalf is just like, you know, Pippin, you did amazing. He rises immediately to that challenge, and he pledges himself to Denethor to pay the debt of Boromir, who lost his life. Yeah. And instantly, despite the fact that Denethor is really going mad, and a lot of his story arc in this first half is his descendancy into full-on madness, Denethor still feels a sense of connection and love, and, you know, Pippin returns that back. There is a bond there. There's something to be said when a common hobbit of the Shire can walk into the greatest hall of men and win over a cold and ruthless heart like Denethor that is just so infinitely charming and speaks to the quality of the hobbits as characters. And I think the main theme from this first half, which I think connects backwards through all of them, is hobbits, when pushed to the test, will rise they will grow and they will rise to the challenge and do what needs to be done in a way that no one else really can. Yeah. And I meditate on that. What are the hobbits symbolically? Why hobbits? What makes them the, 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 the people in this diverse and crazy and magical world that Tolkien focuses on? And for the most part, these, the first half of this book is told almost primarily through Pippin and Mary's eyes with some divergency here and there, but a whole chunk of it, there are point of view yeah, characters. Yeah. So I'd like to ask you, Laurel, if we take the story of this as Pippin rising and rising quickly, going from fool to prince, becoming the true prince of the halflings, worthy of the halls of Denethor, and to do these great brave acts, I mean, he saves Feomir's life. He runs through a battle and gets Gandalf and persuades Gandalf. In the movie, he's just like, Gandalf, I need your help. And Gandalf's like, okay. But in this, he has to talk Gandalf into leaving the front lines of the battle to go and save Feomir's life, and he's successful in it. What do you think that means? Why the hobbits? Wow. Uh, I mean, I think that's an extraordinary question, and that takes us back, right? So this all began with J.R.R. Tolkien writing The Hobbit, Uh, And it started with that line, uh, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. Uh, There is something about them that, of course, the the defining characteristic of them is that they're small, uh, and therefore they are unexpected as heroes. Uh, We contrast them with people like Aragorn um, or even Legolas, who are more traditionally uh, heroic in the way that they're described. Um, And they are not that. They're not large. They're not imposing. They're not necessarily uh, naturally gifted with um, weapons or combat or anything like that. And they're not, um, predisposed to leadership. Uh, they are Hufflepuffs, (laughs) if anything, you know, they're interested in comfort. They like the small things. They like the simple things, uh, and they can be very loyal, but they can also be sort of catty and, uh, they can, they can also be very gossipy. So they're unexpected, I think, is the the key to all of this. But at one point during, uh, I think, the Battle of the Pelennor Fields, we have a line about Mary um, really rising to the occasion, and he calls it, uh, Tolkien calls it, the slow-kindled courage of his race, uh, saying that in all of them, there is an innate quality that, like, slowly and through acts of loyalty and devotion and care for others, compassion and fellowship, there is an innate courage that has to be kindled. Uh, And so that is something that is deep within these characters. And if we think about it, um, I mean, if, if we're reading these as sort of audience surrogates, right, they're introduced to a world that they don't know, that we don't know, they're kind of us. We feel maybe closer to the hobbits than to any other type of character depends on who you are reading, but I certainly identify with the hobbits. And that tells me that I have a slow kindled courage. And when I read about these, uh, these acts and when I read about these characters really coming into their own and defending those that they love, I feel like I could do the same. Um, that's just kind of how I feel about that question that you asked. I love that. If you look at, um, I'm going to expand on that because I think you're really hitting the mark if you look at, let's say, what makes Legolas, Gimli, Boromir, Faramir, Aragorn great, um, their marital prowess, their ability to lead, the fact that they come from these great and noble families, they have these lineages that give them rights yeah. and privileges. You know, um, Aragorn was born to be a king. 
period, full stop. He had no real choice in that matter. Greatness was baked in. Legolas is the son of an elf king. Gimli is the son of Glowin, a great hero from yeah. the Battle of the Five Armies. Gandalf but, was literally sent to Earth to guard the races of, of men and the free people of, of Middle-earth. What makes the hobbits different is that they aren't expected to be great. They don't come from these lineages. It's that they choose this greatness. Yeah, yeah. It's that the circumstances around them, like the kindling of the flame, they have a little bit of courage within them already. But once there's a little oxygen on that fire, it rages and it becomes a great and powerful force. And it becomes the most important force in this world first half of the book. Yeah. It is the hobbits that we really need to make the themes of the, this to completely crystallize. It's also what makes it singularly unique from other stories of the king coming back. Because in the other stories of the king coming back, it's just the king that comes back. They overcome, whether it's an ogre or an army or a dragon, they overcome that and they become the king. Maybe it's a sphinx. Yeah. What makes this different is that there are uh, four very small, underestimated creatures from a faraway land who are like us, normal people who just want to go home with a cup of tea or maybe a strong mug of ale and eat a little bit more than they should that become the heroes that drive the plot to a successful conclusion. Yeah. And for this, this means the saving of Famir in Pippin, and it means the destruction of the Witch King for Mary. Yeah. Um, it's it's not just courage, it's tenacity too, right? So we don't hear about Frodo and Sam in this section, but we have a, a compelling mirror for Frodo and Sam in Pippin and Mary, and we know that Frodo and Sam are on the journey of tenacity. They have to keep going and keep pushing through adversity, uh, and it requires an incredible strength of will. And Mary and Pippin are also held to the same kind of standards. They are up against impossible odds, whether those are bureaucratic or political odds, or those are combat odds. And at the end of this, both Pippin and Mary have gone into battle with almost no hope. Um, as mirrors of each other, since usually Mary and Pippin are sort of an inextricable pair, they're put together, uh, and it's hard to kind of tell them apart as characters. Once they're uh, separated, I think they get opportunities to grow in really interesting and different ways. And I like that um, Pippin gets his opportunity in Minas Tirith, where um, Mary gets a very different, different opportunity in Rohan. He becomes a martial knight, uh, even though that is not something that is laid out for him. He is told not to ride into battle because he's too small to ride on a horse. He finds a way in, he suits up, and he fights. He goes in to fight for his king, and he uh, exhibits those qualities that you would expect of a knight on the battlefield, chivalry in battle. Whereas Pippin gets to uh, exemplify the courtly aspects of knighthood and chivalry. He becomes a courtier. He has to learn politics. He has to uh, learn how to speak uh, in a way that is polite and that is worthy of the halls that he's in. He's even um, really uh, admired by Denethor right away because he speaks quite well, even though he's of humble origins. Uh, and he has to learn, you know, the very um, uh, the, the courtly aspects. He has to learn how to be um, polite and kind and uh Proper, according and, to the proper channels. Yeah. And politic. Yeah. Know what to say, when to say it, and how to say it in the way to maximize the yes. best outcomes. Yes. Which is, hey, I know all of these secrets that the Lord who I'm serving, I can't really tell them because that might make the situation politically untenable. So I'm going to tell as much of the truth as I can without lying while making sure I hold back that the one ring of power has been found and is in the hand of one of my best and oldest and closest friends right under your nose, right in Mordor, and they're trying to destroy it. You know, like he has to hold that whole thing back. And these are these are, are characters that are like incapable of duplicity. Yeah. Hobbits, yeah. that is. Yeah. You know, most of the characters are honor honorable and virtuous and will choose not to be duplicitous. But for a hobbit, it's really, really hard because like you said, they like to share, they like to sing, they like to gossip. It's really hard for them to hold back knowledge. And the, the character who does that the worst 
yeah. is Pippin yeah. until this moment where he becomes, like you said, the courtly knight. He politics with Denethor. Yeah. And that is, um, you know, as much as I love reading about Theoden leading the Knights of Rohan and, you know, Aragorn and Aemir meeting on the field of battle. And like, and I love the battle and how it's oh, written. It's so in this. good. I really do. It's one of the reasons I love it. Coming back to it this time, seeing Pippin's character become that courtly knight juxtaposed to the mirror Mary becoming the, the writer of Rohan yeah. was so enjoyable to me. And those two aspects are given equal weight, even though uh, you can reductively say that Mary is pledged to a good leader, a good king, and Pippin is pledged to uh, someone who is now a poor, weak leader. And this is the first time we see real weak leadership within the series. As optimistic as it has been with uh, with leadership throughout Fellowship and the Two Towers, uh, this shows us a man who was once great, who was once beloved, and who was once uh, a truly capable uh, stand-in for the king, uh, who has completely fallen to uh, madness and selfishness and no longer fulfills his duties in a proper way. However, Pippin is still able to grow and become a good politician, become a good courtier, uh, despite the, uh, the presence of strong leadership. So I think that's an interesting meditation there. Um, Pippin, I totally agree. Pippin also... Um, he becomes good, I think, because he finally understands the true weight of the situation. There is a scene where he is outside of the room where uh, Gandalf and Denethor and some others are counseling, and he's talking to Berigand, who's the uh, the uh, one of the guard who befriends him and sort of shows him the ropes of Minas Tirith, and he starts thinking, you know, I'm really hungry, I hate waiting to eat, but I also feel really anxious because I don't want to eat, I don't want to, like, be cheerful. I don't want to have fun. I don't want to be playful right now because there is so much darkness and I'm so scared and it feels weird uh, engaging in frivolities when there is so much fear and uncertainty. And I think that's a really interesting reflection that this character never would have had. Uh, you know, in the Fellowship of the Ring in the movie where he says, let's go have second breakfast, that whole scene, he's being totally frivolous where there are huge stakes like we're trying to save the world and you're thinking about breakfast, Pippin, but now this character is reflecting and thinking, how can I even think about having second breakfast in a time when everyone is so fearful? It's amazing. Yeah, I totally, totally agree. I think that's about everything I'd want to say about Pippin. I think we touched on some things with Mary that we will probably go back to. Yeah. Um, but while we're kind of in the Minas Tirith space, I'd like to talk a little more specifically about Denethor and Gandalf. I think that's great. A lot of what you see in this, um, characters have mirrors or doubles or opposites. And in many ways, Denethor and Gandalf represent differences here. After all, when the battle commences, it's Gandalf who originally takes control of the forces and leads them when it should be Denethor leading them. And it is Gandalf and Denethor um, who really confront each other on the funeral pyre that is trying to um, burn Faramir alive, I think it's worth, let's talk about the Lord of Gondor, the steward, if you will. And I'd like to understand and pose some questions. How does he go mad and why is him going mad relevant? What lessons can we learn from it? And how, one, how does Tolkien make him go mad? And then from there, what analysis can we reach vis-a-vis -vis that madness? Yeah, Does that make I think sense? that's great. Yeah. I'm posing that question to you. Um, so I'd like to start by sort of uh, just giving an overview of uh, Denethor and how he plays into some of the themes, because I think that's important to understanding how he goes mad. Uh, something that I introduced in uh, a previous episode about um, Two Towers was the dichotomy between kingship and stewardship and how we learn the sort of backstory of why there are stewards of Gondor instead of kings and how the kings are in exile and will one day return in the form of Aragorn. Um, Denethor is a placeholder. Denethor is a proxy. He will never be called king. Never in 10,000 years will a steward become a king of Gondor. Uh, and I think that weighs heavily on Denethor even though we know that he was a wise and good ruler uh, and he raised two good sons uh, and he was loved by his people, he is now losing his marbles. Um, and I think that 
that definition of stewardship comes back in a few key symbols within this text. When uh, they're entering the city of Minas Tirith, Pippin remarks that this white tree in the center of the, the city has gone dead. It's just lying dead there in the city. And presumably a true king would have the tree flourish. And the tree is, in fact, the, um, the banner of Aragorn's house. So once again, we're back to the cultivation of the land as a symbol for good leadership uh, and of, of goodness in the realm. We also have Gandalf actually calling out Denethor and his lack of understanding of the meaning of stewardship. Uh, he says something along the lines of that all of the welfare of all of the kingdoms and people are in Gandalf's care. And then he says to Denethor, after all, I am also a steward. Uh, so he's once again saying, okay, there's a, there's a difference between calling yourself a steward and actually doing the act of it, which is care and cultivation and uh, looking after something so that it can flourish and grow and saying, okay, you used to do that and you're not doing that anymore. What causes that is him basically being fed information by the Dark Lord. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, you know, I want to, I want to, you know, an idea just popped into my head right now in response yeah, yeah, to yeah. that. So a little bit of a Midnight Mist style boomerang. If we think of what is the political systems that work in Middle Earth, even in Gondor, though they are not kings, he rules as an absolute monarch. Absolute monarchy means one person holds a hundred percent of the power, and that power is unchecked by any other political institution. Now, presumably, the line of Denethor if I understand my history of Middle-earth correctly, has ruled over Gondor since the fall of um, Isildur. Yeah, it's something like uh, like 27 generations or something like that. So you're looking at a monarchy, an absolute monarchy, that has existed for an incredibly long time with one line, one ruling family having ruled the entire time. There's not a lot of um, times in human history where one family has had absolute power for considerably long periods of time. Um, usually there's a usurper or, or there's just a point where there's no one to inherit. Yeah. Someone in the family is unable to have children, et cetera, or there's political upheaval. The fact that we have these stewards ruling as absolute monarchs for a very long time and not taking a different title not taking title of the great, the emperor, the king, leaving that as stewards is itself a really significant commentary on this family. One that I think is worth understanding, because imagine if you are the 25th in the same line who's ruled Gondor unquestioned without power, at some point you might be like, listen, the king's not coming back. Yeah, yeah. I am king in all but name. I am taking the name king. Well, and we know that Boromir, you know, felt that way. He was like, why don't you call yourself a king, dad? And his dad's like, meh, can't do it. It's Gondor. Yeah, because I'm actually a steward. So the fact that Denethor keeps the title steward is very symbolically important. It gives room for the politics for a king to come back. So they de facto accept in their title that they may not always have absolute authority and that there is someone else who could return and remove them. That's really a significant and interesting development. So then we ask ourselves if Denethor is willing to keep up the tradition of stewardship, not call himself a king, in fact, resist that, what happens that makes him transition? Yeah. How is it that someone who accepts being a steward is allowing the tree of Gondor to die? Yeah. Right. Who's allowing this kingdom to fall into ruin, 
Why is it, what happens, what's the transition from the wise ruler to the Denethor that we see in this? And I think the answer to that is due to the Palantir. Denethor has one of these lost seen stones. Presumably the Dark Lord has one as well. And you are able to put your hands on it and you're able to see things that you normally would not be able to see. Think of it like a magical camera, but it's under control of Sauron. And Sauron is showing Denethor things which happen to be mostly true, but filtered through the Dark Lord. And in this, we have Gandalf and Pippin giving Denethor information that's filtered, as well as we have the Dark Lord giving him information that's filtered. And what does he see in this magical, you know, camera? He sees Gondor's ruin. He sees the death of his son. He sees the end of his line. He sees all of the potential enemies and threats, and it instills a sense of paranoia. And that's where it sets in with Denethor. I'd say psychologically, that's where the character starts to become bad. As soon as he starts to selfishly want to hold on to his own power instead of actually being a steward. And still it becomes everyone's out to get me rather than what can I do for others? Yeah, I think that is extremely well said because what does he end up doing uh, with this knowledge? What does he end up uh, you know, adopting as his policy when they're at war? He doesn't go down and lead his forces. Uh, he does not believe that they can win this battle. He knows that Gondor is going to fall. So he selfishly goes in all for himself. He tries to choose the time of his own death. You know, foolishly believing that his son is dead, he puts him on a funeral pyre and decides that he's going to die too. And Gandalf is like, hey, you can't choose the hour of your death. That is cowardice. Uh, that is not bravery. And everybody else is showing up, knowing that there is mostly despair uh, at the end of this tunnel, knowing that it's not, you know, a, a hopeful prospect and you will probably die on the battlefield. Uh, but they're not choosing the hour of their death in isolation and cowardice. Yeah. That's an interesting thought there. Is Denethor a coward? Because, I see, you might be right, and that might be the right way to interpret it, but I also look at it as a madness. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Like, I also look at it as having lost one son, having been done nothing but shown paranoid images from the Dark Lord, that's making him scared and fearful and small-minded, then seeing his other son deeply injured, I think he snaps. Yeah. Because it'd be one thing if he's just like, enemies are at the gates, I see no way out. It's just time for me to admit I've been a bad ruler. Yeah, totally. And I'm just going to off myself. It's another thing to take your still-alive son with you. Yeah. He doesn't just want to ruin his own life. He's trying to murder his son so his son can go with him. And I think that's the extra layer beyond just the cowardness um, that then turns into cowardice plus a desire to kill your kid. Yeah. Like, that's really sick at this point. And he directly put Faemir into harm's way. Yeah. He is so guilty that his one son died and he caused the death of his other son because he was a bad father to him that now he needs to kill himself and I do think there is also a lesson to be learned of like, how do you get your information and what's the cost of getting information? Denethor needs to have a large reach to be a successful steward. He is right on the border between himself and Mordor. He's constantly having to fight skirmishes with orcs. Meanwhile, he doesn't have the same kingdom that his ancestors had. It's been in decline. And he's literally been watching his power dwindle away and dwindle away and dwindle away. And what does he do? He turns to a tool of the enemy in order to try to use it to his advantage, and it works against him. Does that sound like another member of his family? Yeah, it really does. Yeah. Does that sound like Boromir, like Boromir in the Boromir. first book? Yeah. Turning to a tool of the enemy, wanting to try to use it against the enemy, and it ends up destroying him. He's suffering from the same... Um, you know, mental disease. I don't know what to call it. It's a delusion. Yeah. The same delusion yeah. of his son. In fact, it was probably Denethor who gave that delusion to Boromir yeah. itself. It's probably passed through them. And, you know, 
you got to be careful with how you get your information, with the ways in which you use information, because it can be a weapon. And the Dark Lord uses the, the Palantir as a weapon, and it's one of the factors that leads to Denethor's madness, cowardness, and demise. Yeah, even learning the truth, but through uh, a filter, through a bias, learning uh, you know only f- portions of the truth and omitting whole other ones, or just being fed what evil wants you to see, that's a a really interesting way to weaponize information. Uh, And that's, you know, this is just a reflection in the moment, but I think you can easily, um, you know, talk about Sauron as a villain, as, you know, non-corporeal, therefore he's not particularly interesting as a character, but as a force, I think the way that he weaponizes information, the way that he uh, deputizes others who follow him, uh, which we also see in this book, uh, the way that his evil spreads through, uh, you know, symbols and through these uh, intangible things is really fascinating and continues to yield interesting results when you analyze it and when you apply it to your to your regular life. I think we can think about that idea of the weaponization of information, especially with regard to today, and apply it and see, okay, are we? Um, are we learning our information through a filter? Are we only seeing what somebody wants us to see or are we learning the whole picture of something? Uh, and how is that coloring the attitudes that we have towards people uh, and how we live our lives? I think it's, yeah, it's an interesting question. And creating symbols that people can rally around combined with disinformation about what those symbols mean can then lead to mobilization of people to do terrible things. Yeah. And that's the way, I mean, that's how a neo-Nazi group operates. That's how a terrorist organization operates. Like, there are a lot of real-world examples of people co-opting and filtering information combined with symbols that people think are tremendously meaningful and powerful, leading to mobilization and leading to people crumbling under the weight of them. Denethor is just one of the many victims. And you're right, Sauron's not a direct force, but he is infiltrated in everything that we have seen and done. And that goes from the actual making of the ring to the corruption of Saruman to now the fall of Denethor. Yeah, yeah, yeah wonderful. I, I totally agree. We are fastly running out of time and we have not even tipped the iceberg. So let's move on. Where yeah, do you want to go next? Absolutely. So should we talk about some of the things that are happening with the Riders of Rohan, things that are happening in Edoras, things that happen on the Battle of the Pelennor Fields? Yeah, you know, traditionally, this has been my favorite part of both the books and movies. Yeah. It's crazy how this time around I was so more Gondor focused. Me too. Than yeah. I was in the past. But yes, I love the Riders of Rohan. You know me, if if there is something that I could be, you'd be on the field of battle with the spear following Theoden for death, death and glory. Death, yeah. <laughs> Go on. Absolutely. So um, I would love to take a little bit of time to talk about one of my favorite characters in the entire series, uh, basically the only woman in the Lord of the Rings, and that's Eowyn, uh, if that's okay with you, because... Uh, we love history, mythology, and philosophy here on the podcast, and this is a really good opportunity to talk about mythology. So I think that um, Eowyn has an interesting parallel in Norse mythology, which uh, if you listen to one of our previous episodes on uh, the Two Towers, we talked about how uh, the people of Rohan are very similar to the Anglo-Saxons, culturally similar to the Norse. So it stands to reason that um, Norse traditions and myths uh, might make it into the mythology surrounding Rohan. So she's really similar to a figure called Brunhild, uh, who uh, shows up in like the 13th century Volsung saga, shows up in the Poetic Edda, and a whole bunch of other places. There's tons of different permutations of her story. Um, she is a warrior queen of Valkyrie, a shield maiden. Uh, and I think the most iconic portrayal of Brunhild is by Bugs Bunny uh, in... <laughs> Because wait, what? <laughs> because her story shows up in the uh, Wagner's Ring Cycle. Ba ba da ba 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 da ba ba. So uh, Bugs Bunny ends up dressing up as Brunhilda in a really iconic Looney Tunes uh, cartoon. Go on. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I just did not expect that. Sorry, I don't mean to be laughing on your point. It's pretty great though. Uh, so she has a doomed, unrequited love for a man named Sigurd, who's one of the main heroes of the sagas, uh, and she's also sort of the original Sleeping Beauty. Uh, There's a version of her tale in the prose Edda where Sigurd finds her asleep on the side of a mountain but wearing armor uh, and appearing almost dead. 
Uh, Sigurd, cut, Sigurd cuts her from the armor and she wakes up. Um, so it's sort of the inspiration for Sleeping Beauty, or at least the Grimm brothers would have you believe so. Uh, I won't go into all of the detail of what happens in her story because it's really complex. There's a lot of magic and shape-shifting and trickery, but Brunhild lives on this mountain surrounded by a wall of flame and can only marry a man who will ride through that wall of flame. Uh, so Sigurd is able to ride through this wall of flame, but he's already married, so he swaps bodies with this guy Gunnar, and Brunhild marries Sigurd in Gunnar's body before they swap bodies back. Uh, things end up getting really tragic from there on. There's a bunch of versions of the story where Brunhild actually has Sigurd killed uh, because he tricked her, but usually he ends up dying and uh, she either triumphs or she jumps on his funeral pyre. Um, so the parallels here, I think, it's once again Tolkien taking apart the elements of these myths and putting them back together in a new order, but you probably picked out a few things in me telling those basic details that are parallels to Eowyn. So just like Brunhild, Eowyn is a shield maiden for Rohan, uh, which we've already established as mirroring Anglo-Saxon and Norse-adjacent culture. Uh, she has a doomed love for Aragorn, just like Brynhild has a doomed love for Sigurd, but the great hero, just as in the Norse stories, is already pledged to another woman, so can't love her. Um, just like Sigurd was the one who cut Brynhild's armor and woke her up, Aragorn is with Eowyn on her sickbed where she appears dead and is there trying to heal her, bringing his healing hands of a king. But she ends up marrying a man who travels through flame in Faramir who literally jumps from a funeral pyre and lives through it. It was also dying of a burning fever. Yeah, and who also looks dead and is almost a sleeping beauty on his own. So it's a whole bunch of those pieces being reassembled in a new order. Um, so I love those parallels. I think she's also a, a really Shakespearean character. Um, there are, uh, particularly Viola and Rosalind, there are uh, cross-dressing women in Shakespeare's plays. Um, but she has a very Shakespearean moment when she's dressed as Durnhelm and is riding into battle, goes up against the Witch King with Mary by her side, and they have this dialogue, and the Witch King says, you're a fool, no man can kill me, I cannot be killed by any man. She removes her helmet and is like, you look upon a woman. Uh, and it's a lot like the scene in Macbeth where uh, Macbeth is facing down Macduff, and he's like, oh, no woman, no man of woman born can kill me, and Macduff is like, ha-ha, I was a C-section, therefore I can kill you. So uh, an interesting way where these prophecies are flipped on their heads by uh, really literal insignificant details. Yeah, I totally get that. Another, another thing, in Norse mythology, when a great warrior dies, they are greeted by a Valkyrie. Valkyries, yeah. And a Valkyrie will take them to the hall of Valhalla, in which they will feast with Odin until the time of Ragnarok, in which they'll rise again to fight the Frost Giants. And a few things in that myth that happen with Theoden, who um, is knocked from his horse and broken, and then the Nazgul comes, the, the Witch King comes to kill him, and then who steps in? But the Shield Maiden of Rohan, a literal Valkyrie, to stop this demon from consuming and destroying the body of the king to preserve the body so that it can transition to the next life. So he meets his literal Valkyrie. And what does Theoden say to Mary as he dies? He says to Eowyn in the movie, you know, I, um, I go now to the halls, the halls yeah. of my father, who's in mighty company, I shall not feel ashamed. Yeah. So he says, I'm going to a hall with my father, so he's going to follow them because he died in battle to the hall, presumably of Odin, yeah. to the afterlife to feast and not feel ashamed because he died in battle. Yeah. So I think that myth is also deconstructed, kind of chopped together and rebuilt in the falling of Theoden, which links them back to medieval England, which has a direct connection to Scandinavia and Norse and ancient Germanic um, pagan traditions. Yeah. Uh, you also have uh, Theoden and his dying words lamenting to Mary that they won't be able to share a pipe and a, you know, mead in the hall of Meduseld. And they had promised that they would share stories together, but how ironic is it that they are, you know, here uh, on the battlefield together. Uh, and Mary uh, is just unable to tell uh, Theoden that Eowyn is there too. Yeah. Uh, the woman that he holds dearer than daughter you know, thinking about Theoden, uh, reading this section, I was sobbing. Like, I, 
I was sobbing like I almost never do when I read books. And I knew it was coming, but it's just so beautifully written and uh, so tragic when you lose this character. You mentioned Gandalf and, and Denethor being foils and mirrors of each other, and they absolutely are. But there's also a very um, clear line being drawn of the differences between Theoden and Denethor uh, here. Their names are almost anagrams of each other, and one of them is dying in glory on the battlefield as a good king who led his citizens and in his dying breath says, Aemir should be king next, give my love to Eowyn, like knows exactly what to do, but also dies with uh, honor and valor and has these resonant final words, whereas Denethor refuses to fight and ends up you know, burning to death and passing out of memory with no memorable last words. Yeah, I think that is a very important distinction. And, you know, I love King Theoden, traditionally my favorite character in all of them, and the one that I kind of identify with, not in any literal sense, but in a like a in a metaphoric sense. In a past life, I was like King yeah, Theoden, because yeah. I'm not really like King Theoden in my actual life. Um, but yeah, I totally agree with you in that mirror. Whereas, and it's not even just the mirror and sort of opposites in those leaders, also in the people. So the Gondorians build massive cities. They've existed for a long period of time. They hold lots of territory. They've been known to be the most powerful. If there were a quote-unquote high king of Middle-earth, it would have been the king of Gondor, and all the other subsequent kingdoms are smaller. The the halls of, of Denethor are huge and marble and beautiful and you know, really advanced versus in Theoden and Edoras, which is just a regular hall. It's made of wood. It's rustic. The city is smaller, you know, like the king of of Rohan is expected to lead the Rohirrim himself in battle. That is the source of their strength is that they follow the king and the king must be a warrior versus a steward a steward whose job is to help grow and cultivate and be a placeholder till the king comes back, who isn't expected to lead the people themselves in war, who's expected to stay in the great hall. Most kings, most emperors, they might travel with their armies, but most of the time they don't. Mm. It's the exceptions. It's why there's only one Alexander the Great, right? Because he was on the front lines. It's why Richard is called Richard the Lionhearted, because it's unusual for kings to really put themselves in harm way for their people in human history. And that's the source of the people of Edoras and the people of Rohan. That's the source of their power. That's where they uh, gain their strength, and that's what they follow. And that's why when Theoden dies... You know, Aemir goes into a rage and rallies everyone to uh, muster another attack. Because after the fall of the king, you would expect there to be a morale, uh, uh, like a morale like failure, a vacuum of power on the battlefield. Who takes orders from who? Chaos ensues. Nope. Right there, Aemir takes the charge, leads the people of Rohan, and in the middle of the battle, meets the true king. Aragorn, and together they form the alliance, which wins the Battle of Pelennor Field. Yeah. So uh, so what I'm gathering from what you're saying and something that's coming together for me is that both Denethor and Theoden, in their strengths and weaknesses alike, form uh, a model for what kind of king Aragorn will be. Because while he doesn't meet with Denethor in this, he feels the, you know, the reverberations of the kind of ruler that Denethor is. And he has uh, essentially studied under uh, Theoden. He has been an advisor to him and he's been on the field with him and with uh, his allies. So he is learning from both of these men what kind of king he wants to be, which is someone who rides into battle and will rally his troops and will be an inspiration to the people who fight for him. And he will also be a literal steward. Uh, so to kind of talk about Aragorn here, uh, and how you know, his his symbol is the tree, although he will take new banners. He will take the banner of Strider instead of the House of Elendil. Uh, he is someone who can lead um, land to flourish. He will make the tree flower again. He knows Herblore and has the hands of a healer. So when he enters the Houses of the Healing, the first thing he asks for is King's Foil. He knows exactly what plant... 
uh, grows in the gardens that can do the sort of magical work of healing. And he has almost magical healing powers, what a steward should have. So not only can he fight, not only is he wonderful in combat and incredibly inspiring uh, and can rally, you know, these the armies of the dead to fight for him. He is also someone who can have steady healing hands, who can call you back from the other side of the veil to fight for you again uh, on a new day. He heals Eowyn, he heals Faramir. He brings these people back and they immediately devote themselves to him. Yeah, that's a really good call out there. I uh, I enjoy where you're going. A- Aragorn is, it, he has an interesting journey in this, literally, having gone to the, under the ma- the mountain and commanding a group of undead warriors to fight for him, which cuts off the reserves that would have come and swayed the battle in favor of Mordor. Um, he is able to then sway the battle in favor of um, the, the men. You know, a few interesting things to add on top of that. One, it's interesting how the movie chooses to have the army of the dead just come and kill all the forces of Mordor. Yeah. If you could literally, and that's one of the points where I'm like, yeah, you know, Jackson, I think you made it a fun visual sequence, but it isn't as interesting thematically because the Battle of Pelennor Field in the book is just won by our heroes. Even um, Tolkien writes Gandalf out of the battle because Gandalf has to go with Pippin to stop Denethor. So there's literally no supernatural aid. So Gandalf can't ride in with a magic spell and defeat the king of the Nazgul in the, in the Witch King. It has to be, a, which leaves room for Eowyn and Mary to work together, two unlikely heroes to kill the, the Witch King. And it means that Eomir and Aragorn need to meet on the battlefield together, and they have to uh, lead the troops to victory and are able to do it. And that secures the one arm of kingship that he needs, which is he has to win on the battlefield. If he can't win on the battlefield, he can't be king because there are too many people trying to literally kill the king. Yeah. So step one, succeed militarily. Step two is he needs to succeed politically. And how does he do this? He does not, even though he has the banner of the king flying on the on the field. Yeah, yeah. He, he furls them. Yeah. He does not enter the city. He won't take his force into the city and demand kingship. He is waiting to be welcomed, which is another way to say he is waiting for consent of the governed. Yeah. He is waiting for them to say, please, king, return here. He's not, he doesn't know at this point that Denethir has passed. He's not going to take the stewardship by force of arms. He's going to wait for that power vacuum to happen, for that steward to step by, for the people to say, King, please return. In that respect, he understands the politics of the situation really well and then is invited in secret to come and heal, which then adds the other sort of arm or tripod, if you will, which is the mythic power of the king. Yeah, yeah. The idea that the king can heal, the king can cultivate, the king can bring uh, people back from the brink of dead. This king can literally bring the dead to fight for him yeah. and bring the living back from the point of dead, which spreads like wildfire in terms of a, a, like a rumor in the city of Minas Tirith that, hey, there's a king out there. They won the battle. They brought Rohan as an ally they're healing our captains and shield maidens and uh, halfling princes so that they're healing our heroes and they're waiting for us to just say, please come back and be king. And then when there is a council out, this is so smart of Aragorn in the book here. He advises that we all follow Gandalf. Yeah. He doesn't take the leadership. He says, there's someone here better to lead us I, my advice is we follow Gandalf. He's allowing others to lead. And from the, so then, so giving power to the wizard is another way to understand both the military, the political, and the mythic side of his kingship. 
And then he chooses Strider as the name of his house. So instead of his birthright, he chooses his ranger identity. And his ranger identity is the one who's been out in the field for all these years, the one who was part of the fellowship, the one who has been working to destroy the ring. Uh, so he chooses that, uh, all of the work that he has done to earn the crown, to prove that he could be a good king over just his birthright, which I think is amazing. You know, he, he goes into this not saying, I'm king because I have this uh, claim from my birth. Uh, instead, he says, I'm king because I campaigned. Like, I showed up and I did the work, and all the races of Middle-earth owe their lives and their livelihoods to me. Oh, okay. That's an interesting way to put it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't think he does so in, like, an arrogance, necessarily, but I think... Uh, that that everything that he has done up until this point is to prove to himself and to others that he can serve as king. And so he takes that name instead of the name that, you know, he inherited. Yeah, I do think it's significant that he trades out his familiar name. It also symbolizes a new form of kingship, a new line of kingship. It's saying that there is something fundamentally different from me compared to the family that I came from and I am starting a new family, I'm the first king of this new generation, that I do think is also politically smart yeah. as well as symbolically smart. It's saying, you know what? The last kings, they haven't been here for 2,000 years. Yeah, I can't take the name of kings that didn't rule for 2,000 years. I'm going to take the, the king of the new name. I am Strider. Yeah. Which yeah. he translates into a different language. Yeah, it in sounds the high, more beautiful. In the high tongue, it sounds good. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, this is literally the going to mark a new age. Once he assumes his kingship and the ring is destroyed, it'll be the end of the third age and the beginning of the fourth, the age of man. So it's significant that he would take a new name and forge a completely new identity. And it's tradition, one that dates back to ancient Rome, when uh, Caesar, Octavian Caesar... Um, adopts and becomes the sole ruler of the first imperial monarchy of Rome, he takes on the name Caesar Augustus. Yeah. He changes his name. If you are crowned as a monarch in most of Europe that still has monarchs, you get dubbed a new name. Once you become the king, your name changes. You have your pre ruler name and then post ruler name. And that's a tradition yeah, that you have a regnal name. Yeah. In Western civilization that starts with, um, you know, Caesar Octavian becoming Caesar Augustus. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so you mentioned that the battle of the Pelennor fields was a victory and it sort of is, but it kind of isn't because we end up with such a depleted force here at the end. There are so few survivors that going into the next stage of battle is going to be uh, far, far uphill, and it is. Uh, so the remaining forces go and approach the Black Gate and are meted by the mouth of Sauron, a lieutenant, uh, who shows them the mithril shirt and the effects of Frodo and Sam, uh, and hope really starts to drain from our characters as they negotiate whether or not to um, uh, give up, to surrender in order to save Frodo and Sam. Um, it's, it's horrible, it's sad, um, and it's hopeless here at the end, uh, after everything that we have been through, and we have no idea what's going on with the ring bearers, and we won't know for a little while. But Pippin joins the front ranks. There is no hope. There is only a sense that he is riding to his death. But even Pippin, who has no martial training, uh, who was never expected to be a fighter, or a soldier joins the front line because he knows it's the right thing to do. Uh, and in the final moments of the book, as they're charging against the Black Gate, as they're choosing to uh, fight to the very, very end, Pippin thinks to himself, the eagles are coming. And then he thinks, no, no, no. That was Bilbo's tale, not this tale. And then his vision goes black, uh, and presumably Pippin... Uh, has been defeated or died. We we will find out what happens in the next book. Uh, I want to reflect on that final moment just because it comes back to something we've been talking about a lot with The Lord of the Rings and how uh, we have this grand story that is often um, put into the context of, of a story within a story, of great tales that never end, and we all play our parts, and we all have something to do, and we'll come in and out 
uh, and will die on the march. Uh, and this is another one of those moments where narrative and reality start to blend, where Pippin thinks he sees eagles, but then thinks, no, that was just a story. What is really the difference between the story and reality, uh, I think, is, is coming into play here at the end of book five. And there are several moments within this book where our omniscient and detached narrator jumps back in when a significant event happens, when a character dies, or when uh, someone has been defeated, we hear the narrator say something along the lines of, and that sound was never heard on the face of Middle-earth again, or, and then Denethor was gone and he was never seen by mortal men again, or, and no one could remember his name. Uh, so it's a continuum of, uh, of storytelling that we are involved in that is reaching back and forward in time as we end this age. Yeah, that's such an interesting thought. You know, as you ask, as I ask myself the question, you know, reading through this, why participate in civilization at all? And in many ways, we we make a choice to participate in the civilizations that we have. To a certain extent, we don't have a lot of choice. And it's certainly true that modern sociology, psychology, and economics tells us that we may not be as free as we think we are. But at the end of the day, the great comfort in the absolute temporary nature of our existence is that there is a grander story to which we can play one part in and that story goes on after we go and we all have these inflection points and moments where we may be staring at a dark and lonely road and we may want to mount a horse and the lord may be telling us we can't and we know in our heart it's the right thing to do we may be um, bound to serve another who wants to do something completely mad, like murder themselves and their son. And we may have to decide at that moment, what is our part to play in this story, though we may be small, and we may just be yearning for the comforts of home, a warm fire, and a cup of ale. There may came, come a time where we're called upon to do something else, and that thing could turn out to be more extraordinary than we could ever imagine ourselves to be. I can't think of the, as we started at the podcast at the very beginning, if you're stocking shelves in the middle of a pandemic in a grocery store, you've done something heroic. And who would have thought that would have been the case just two months ago, you know, let alone two years ago. And we are all contributing in one way or another into this grander story. And if hobbits can band together and defeat the evil of Mordor, what, what can't we do? Beautifully said. We'll pick up soon with the ring bearers and we will find out uh, more about the extraordinary tenacity and courage of hobbits. And we'll find out that there's always something more within us. Uh, if we force ourselves to keep going, even when it looks darkest. Um, thank you for joining us. I can't wait to get to the final act of this book. And until next time, be kind. Be kind. Be kind.